Hi, I'm Paul Corver from R&Q and you're listening to the Global Captive Podcast. Welcome captives and captive friends to the sixth episode of the Global Captive Podcast hosted by me, Richard Kutcher, and supported by award-winning legacy specialists R&Q. And from R&Q this week, I'm delighted to introduce this week's guest co-host, Paul Corver, Group Head of M&A. Welcome to the pod. Thank you, Richard. It's great to be here and good afternoon, listeners. Uh, very pleased to be co-hosting this sixth podcast. Paul, I know you're recently just back from RIMS in Boston, so how was the trip uh, across the pond? It was great, thank you, Richard. I mean, RIMS is a fantastic venue for getting together with contacts, new and old, uh, to develop relationships. You can't beat that face-to-face interaction that you get with those meetings, uh, especially for the team that works out of the Bermuda office, getting in front of the brokers and the risk managers and the other contacts um, on a face-to-face basis is invaluable for progressing transactions. Uh, We take it very much for granted in the London market where you can see most people within the same square mile to just meet up for a quick coffee, uh, that we forget how difficult it is when dealing with a country as big as the US uh, to maintain those relationships. Yeah, it is absolutely a huge gathering and I'm glad that today you've made a short journey just downstairs from your office down to our Fenchurch Studios. So thank you for that. I saw on LinkedIn yesterday that you've also just completed a 10-year chairmanship of the IRLA or ERLA, I believe, um, which is the Insurance and Reinsurance Legacy Association. Is that a bit of an end of an era for you? It is, but I will still be on the board. Uh, ERLA is the the UK-based market body, really, for those who work in or alongside the legacy market, uh, stretching across UK and Europe. Uh, So having been the chairman for 10 years, worked with some great people, met some great people, uh, we've really pushed the the ERLA programme of education, of networking, of lobbying. Uh, We now have very varied membership from Allianz to Zurich and everyone in between. Um, but especially proud of our Young Professionals group, which is now 350 members strong, to see the uh, the enthusiasm and the experience coming in in the new generation of people who want to work in legacy. Ten years ago, legacy was seen as the back office where uh, the the last liabilities were being handled and no one really wanted to participate. But now everyone sees the innovation there is in the legacy sector, the desire to get involved and the excitement around transaction activity. Interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking a bit, a bit more about exciting uh, legacy um, activity. But I know we've got some really interesting guests lined up for this episode. So what have you got in store? Well, our first set piece interview is with Anne-Marie Toll, a captive consulting practice leader within JLT. Anne-Marie is well known and respected across the US captive market. And she spoke to me about the importance of forging collaboration between the reinsurance brokerage and captive units within the business. And in the second half, our captive owner interview is with the awesome duo Courtney Claflin and Karen Z from the University of California. If you are not familiar with the UC captive project, then do stay tuned because it is a fascinating case study in executing an ambitious captive strategy within a public organization. But first, Paul, for the uninitiated on the topic of legacy, could you briefly explain a bit about how the industry first emerged, its evolution and its ever-increasing relevance for captives? Okay, so legacy, or as we used to call it, runoff, in effect is there and has been ever since the first insurance policy was written because once the policy expires, it is in theory in runoff. However, the industry as we see it today really started out of the collapses in the 1990s 
of insurance companies on both sides of the Atlantic, um, suffering from large losses from asbestos and pollution and other toxic torts. And certainly in, in the London market, where my runoff career started in 1990, there were needs to develop uh, solutions to handle how these uh, runoffs uh, and insolvencies were going to be managed. And that gave rise to a comprehensive toolbox of, of solutions available. The legacy market really started continuing to grow um, from that point. Uh, R&Q were one of the first uh, companies set up in 1991 to acquire runoff business, where Mr. Randall and Mr. Quilter saw opportunities where people were trying to get away from their asbestos liabilities to, to take them on board um, for a, a decent premium. And it's grown from there. Obviously, a whole load of other acquirers in the market, portfolios of business are regularly traded. Zurich Insurance is at the forefront of disposing of multi-million dollar or euro books of business on a regular basis. So it really has has turned the corner from where it was in those toxic days of the 90s. Yeah, and during my first, um, oh sorry, during my five years at Captain Review, I, I remember reporting on a lot of stories which uh, involved R&Q, usually buying a captive outright from its parent or taking on a portfolio of unwanted business from the captive. What are some of the common reasons you tend to see captive owners either looking to offload a, a captive or, or a line of business? We did our first deal back in 2009, which was acquiring the Guernsey captive of the um, insolvent Woolworths retail group. Okay. And clearly the liquidators saw there was surplus capital in the captive and wanted to appreciate that. Surplus pick a mix as well? Surplus pick a mix, unfortunately not. <laughs> it was just the liabilities. Um, but you know, what we saw in those early days was a lot of opportunities arising from M&A activity at a corporate level. So two large organisations coming together, find themselves with five, six, seven captives dotted around the globe. While they want to retain some, they want to dispose of others and, and trim off the dead wood. Similarly, where corporates dispose of operating divisions, they might find that they've, they've got rid of the division, but they're still carrying the historic liabilities. So again, we can take those away through novation, transfer, or even just a straightforward reinsurance. And moving forward now, there's a lot more focus on capital efficiency. We obviously see insolvency too in the, in the EU, which has focused minds on the capital that's, uh, that's needed to support the activity of a captive but also uh, across the US where there are significant um, amounts of capital held up in collateral obligations to front companies and where captives have changed front companies over the years there tends to be a reluctance for uh, releases of a, of a reasonable nature on some of the historic. So again we, we can transact, we take on those collateral responsibilities. Uh, and I suppose the other, the main area we see is is just really protecting against volatility on some of the long tail classes such as employers liability or workers compensation, um, asbestos. We're talking to a number of large corporates who have asbestos liabilities on their own balance sheet um, and we're talking to them about how to remove those. Uh, we, we don't mind asbestos, we've been doing it uh, and running those liabilities for decades. And one of, one of the interesting things I always remember is the number of um, what, what you sometimes call consolidated vehicles in kind of large captive domiciles. So I think they come about from when you first buy a captive within a jurisdiction, you'll pick that entity up, whether it be in Guernsey, I think you've got one in uh, Isle of Man, uh, Bermuda, uh, and, and Malta for, for EU risks. Can you just talk me through that process and how, and how you use those consolidated vehicles in those sure, jurisdictions? Sure, sure. I mean, with the number of deals that we do, and I think we've transacted about 80 deals in the last five, six years, um, we would end up with a, an ever-increasing structure chart. Uh, and we would have overwhelming governance issues dealing with numerous companies in numerous jurisdictions. 
So part of our rationale, upon certainly upon the acquisition of a company, is to look to merge the business or transfer the business into one of our existing vehicles. And we, we push that forward across the, the various markets, as you've referred to. We have a consolidator in Malta for the EU. We use a Bermuda segregated account company to bring together business that faces uh, front companies. So, for example, travellers, we have a cell particularly for travellers. So we've brought together about eight or nine different captive uh, participations all now within the one cell. So it gives them um, a much smaller pot to have to look at with one entity for their collateral reviews. Similarly, we have them for AIG, Liberty, Safety National, etc. And so the, the, the real, I suppose the real modus operandi is for us to acquire and consolidate um, in order to get the efficiencies ourselves. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And then in terms of uh, where you see most opportunities and activity for, for legacy management, um, are there any particular markets at the moment which are particularly fruitful? Uh, the US is always is always fruitful, I think, uh, partly because the US has so many different structures than, than Europe. I mean, in Europe, we just have the single parent captives and the cells, which we do see opportunities coming from those. But certainly in the US, we're now involved with uh, providing reinsurances to risk retention groups. Uh, we're doing deals with group captives to take away old years of cover. We are um, providing um, reimbursement policies to corporates for the deductibles that they hold in their balance sheets. And because of our um, admitted paper through our US company, admitted across all 50 states, we're able to work with self-insurance funds where the license is needed. So for example, in California, I think we're one of just two companies that can do an assumption agreement of historic workers' comp liabilities on self-insurance funds, and that's all been approved by the Office of Self-Insurance Programs in, in California. So we really have a much wider set of, uh, of tools in the US to use for the wide array of uh, captive structures. Yeah, and, and workers' compensation, as we discussed in episode three of the Global Captive podcast with Karen Landry and, and Frederick Finman um, of Sandvik, is obviously a huge area in the US, which we just don't really have in, in Europe. So if you're able to get into, into that line of insurance, I'm sure there's plenty of opportunities there. Um, so it is now time for our first guest of episode six, it is important to note that I recorded this interview with Anne-Marie Toll at the Seeker International Conference in March, which was before Marshall McLennan had completed its acquisition of JLT. Anne-Marie started by discussing how she is focused on forging relationships and collaboration between JLT Re and the captive practice over the past two and a half years. It really stems from some of my experience over the years and my prior experience with my prior employer is we looked around the marketplace and nobody else really was aligned with their reinsurance brokerage unit and being embedded and integrated in with them and approaching the marketplace as one unit and so the decision was made to actually place JLT insurance management as part of JLT re our reinsurance arm and what we did was go out essentially and educate everybody within our reinsurance arm and align ourselves with various segments of the population and resources, whether it's the public entity practice or the programs unit or whatever it may be, um, the medical malpractice as well. And we did an education series and vice versa learning where their pain points were and the importance of it is being able to go to market and serve our clients in a cohesive manner 
and deliver this in a manner that none of our competitors really were and nobody was focusing on it that was the number one important benefit of doing it were you surprised because considering that um you know reinsurance is a big part of a captive right one of the major reasons for having a captive is to access larger markets and the international reinsurance markets so bearing that in mind were you surprised that other management companies captive management companies hadn't been more proactive in, in building those relationships and building that synergy absolutely uh, because with as i mentioned with my prior experience it was interesting and not every captive obviously accesses the reinsurance market or requires fronting but the the benefits that can be reaped and the synergies that can be gained with number one cross-selling opportunities but number two having that market approach and being able to provide the fronting solution the reinsurance the captive consulting the captive management all as a, a you know bundled solution is very beneficial to the clients because many times when you look at the competition it was somewhat segmented and whether you're an Aon Willis or Marsh they they may or may not utilize their resources or it may have been an external referral and so it becomes a bit uh, decentralized in my opinion where some of that access needs to be cohesive and a collaborative approach in in my opinion and I think they just didn't step up to the game and we felt like we could differentiate ourselves in the marketplace by focusing on the synergies and the networking from the client deliverables and the client servicing which is at the end of the day why we're all here. I guess if you're going to be working for a a captive manager which is owned by a broker you want to take advantage of of those networks correct (laughs) no it is interesting because with myself in my own career I've evaluated and looked at should you align yourself with a broker owned captive management consulting firm or be an independent and obviously there are positives and negatives to each and benefits but what I've prided myself on is building and networking relationships internally and externally and part of the internal network it can go untapped if you don't dedicate some resources and and that's really part of the strategy is building it out and dedicating resources because it does take time and energy to build that networking just very similar to the way we all build our own personal network you need to do it internally and externally and I think if if some of the organizations really focused on that internal aspect it would be pretty incredible to see some of the results fairly quickly. And, and that's really what we've experienced in, in the two years since we synergized our practices. And look, looking ahead then, or looking towards the actual clients themselves, what kind of innovation are we, are we seeing in the captive market today? What, what, what's new that's happening, do you think, at the moment? You know, when we think about innovation and what can be different, captives obviously were created from the creativity stemming from each of the organization and how can we do this differently or or build a better mousetrap. And I think there's still a lot of innovation happening on areas such as can we look within our corporate family, particularly for single parents, can we look within our corporate family and what type of risks do we have exposure for or have relationships with joint ventures, affiliated partners, and there's some risk there but we may not have the optimal solution with some of our policies or they can't provide the type of policies and limits that we require so i think there's still innovation from supply chain management relationships vendor activity things along those lines what i'm seeing a lot of questions on and how can we manage this risk and of course the other area that's always a hot topic cyber privacy security 
and how can we develop this in a little bit different manner and, and instead of reactive, what can we do proactively and building out towers of insurance. And I think the towers of insurance and integrated risk programs are still going to be in vogue for a while because I think there are ways you can develop some of your programs that are applicable for many lines of coverage across your property casualty and your employee benefits health areas. Yeah, I definitely see, I'm having a lot of conversations at the moment with, with captain managers and clients around being more proactive. I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but being more proactive of using the captive as, as the central as a central uh, hub for all your insurances and then buying reinsurance on a more kind of multi-year, multi-line basis, which yeah, it's not a new thing, but I definitely seem to see more clients wanting to explore that using their scale to right. achieve achieve better reinsurance deals. Absolutely, and I think that's the approach, and we call it here at JLT, we call it the captive-centric approach. So having the captive core and central to all the decisions you make within your risk management decisions every day. And you may retract in certain times, you may actually add to the coverages, but it's utilizing it and thinking proactively on how can we manage this risk how can we look at and evaluate the market conditions, particularly right now, the auto industry and auto liability, and how is that having an impact? And maybe we should retain more risk versus transferring it. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by RQ, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. RQ can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to RQ. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined in the studio by RNQ's Paul Corver. Obviously, Paul, legacy management can often be associated with the end of a captive's life, uh, but that isn't always the case, as, as we've already discussed. How much of an interest do you take uh, in the wider captive market and the current trends with regards to new lines of business and emerging jurisdictions? We take a great interest in what's developing in the wider captive market. I mean, Tomorrow's runoff is today's live, so we need to keep abreast of developments, what com- what companies and corporates are looking to put into their captives, your cyber is often mentioned, as well as some of these newer risks, you know, and, and, and assessing, well, what could that mean for runoff later in the day? Uh, but also monitoring legal and regulatory developments. I've mentioned some of these previously, such as BEAT, uh, the diverted profit tax regime, substance rules, Brexit, uh, all sorts of manner of, uh, of rules, regulations coming down the pipe almost on a, on a monthly basis that could impact the sector and could give rise to, to opportunities for us. So, so we monitor very closely what is, what's developing by way of new lines of business as well as what's developing from a regulatory perspective. And I'm sure that's true as well, not just within the captive legacy area, but just in the broader commercial legacy area. But you must, as you say, if, if we're seeing a lot more cyber risk being written, legacy specialists such as yourselves are going to have to understand about that risk and how that insurance has been written and what that what the tale is going to be and how it's going to claims are going to evolve in the future correct yeah and certainly that has been a a part of what we've been doing in the runoff space for the last 20 almost 30 years you're monitoring what's been happening in the live sector 
in a way to sort of predict what's going to be coming through as, as tomorrow's runoff. Yeah, interesting. Well, one of the uh, most interesting captive projects today is found at the University of California, the largest public university system in the world with more than 230,000 students and almost 200,000 employees. UC has really dialed up its uh, captive insurance strategy since Courtney Claflin, executive director for captive programs and later Karen Z, program manager for its captive portfolio, joined the university system. I was really fortunate uh, to sit down with Courtney and Karen and discuss their activities in depth in March. And Karen began by detailing their current portfolio and the insurance they provide to the university system. So our captive platform currently consists of four captives, our single parent, pure captive, Fiat Lux, that writes over 40 lines of coverage, making up, I mean, over a billion and a half of our portfolio. Uh, we do direct issue policies to UC, quota shares, layers, buffers, play, and all of that. And then we also have our reciprocal risk retention group, UC Health RRG, that was primarily created to provide medical malpractice for our affiliated physicians and physician, physician groups coming out of our UC medical centers. We most recently just uh, built a cell captive structure for our voluntary life and voluntary disability cell, uh, Eureka One, and it's sponsored by Eureka, a core company, a non-risk bearing core company. And so we have the sponsor and it sponsors our first cell and we actually are sponsoring a Cal State cell as well. So all of our captives are domiciled in DC and yeah, it's a growing, ever-growing captive portfolio. So I'm sure next time you talk to us, Courtney <laughs> and I will have some more to add on that cell structure. So Good. Yeah, sounds good. So it's interesting that you're also using the cells to, um, yeah, so, so it, if different colleges within the system can use their own cell for whatever they need to, uh, and, and it can be separate from the rest of the program. Right, right. As part of the mission, I think, for the university and if, if for higher education in general, I think our governor for, of the state had mentioned that they wanted us to share resources and, you know, Cal State, one of our partners, Willie, in higher education within the state of California, you know, they don't have a very complex uh, risk management department as we do here at the University of California. And so what we've been able to do is provide the blueprint for them and give them the resources to go ahead and have their own cell currently to write their workers' compensation. But if they ever felt the need to spin off and do more with their captive, they are totally able to do so since it's in that cell captive and is an incorporated cell. Yeah, it's a great example. And we hear a lot about people and people who want to sell cell solutions talking about those exact kind of uses for cells and how they're flexible in that way. So it's great to really hear a, a real life example of that happening. So now we know the state of play, Courtney. You joined as exec director of UC's captive program in April 2015, I believe. That's correct. How far away from what you have now was the setup three and a half years ago? Well, when we got there, there was one captive, Fiat Lux, uh, which is a single parent, not-for-profit captive. And it was um, insuring about four lines of coverage. Um, the captive was generating about $24 million worth of premium. And now we've got a billion and a half dollar of assets. Um, we're on a run rate, probably over half a billion dollars of premium. We've got four captives. Uh, there's probably going to be at least another additional two the we've captured uh, a majority of the first party insurance meaning 
we write policies back to the university. We captured most of that with Fiat Lux. Now go forward, we're, we're turning our focus to student and faculty and employee programs. So we're going to go into third-party business. And as a result of Fiat Lux being a not-for-profit captive, you're very limited to the amount of third-party business you can do in Fiat Lux and retain our tax-exempt status. So that requires us to tilt up new captives. Yep. And um, I think it's probably safe to say, if I were to throw a dart right now, that within the next uh, two, three years, we'll have two or three more. Yeah, exciting stuff. So going back to when you when you first came in and uh, Fiat Lux was already in place and it was doing it was doing a certain amount of business, was it a difficult sell internally to move the university system to a more captive-centric strategy, to put the captive really at the center of everything you do insurance procurement-wise? That's a good question. And, and there, there, were some, there were some challenges. But my boss, who's the chief risk officer, her name is Cheryl Lloyd, uh, just an absolute one of the most wonderful people in the world. She said she inherited the captive from the previous chief risk officer. And the consultants that built the captive with UC had, had always kind of told them there's a lot of stuff you can do, but they just couldn't get it done because they didn't have the internal resources to do it. So they were, they were teed up for a lot of the stuff that we did immediately, and I think pleasantly surprised at some of the other things that they've learned we can do with it. Um, so the lift wasn't um, a tremendous lift. I mean, we went to from 25 million to over a billion in 12 months, yeah. and we built an RRG in the same time period. So they were willing to allow this kind of progress to be made. There was still some education that needed to be done because you're working with a number of different departments within the university that are saying, what, who's Fiat Lux, what are you doing? But those, those obstacles were overcome just with continuous teaching. Yeah, so you both mentioned uh, Eureka One as the latest captive vehicle you have launched, and you both touched on that a little bit. But having gone live in March this year, the captive? Yeah. Uh, what, what, was, what is the exact purpose of that new captive? What, what is that new vehicle? writing well one of the things that we all know in the captive industry is life and disability okay it was invented back in the late 90s uh, I think Columbia Energy Group was the first to do it and ADM came on second and we have a considerable spend for life and disability almost 200 million dollars a year and so what we did is we did a feasibility study on it what the results that came back were that the the disability was a stinker it was around 114 percent which is hot yeah uh, but the life insurance was was profitable so what we've done is is we've parked the disability for now um, we're actually putting a task force on uh, rehabilitating that program that'll probably take a couple years to get that done so we're putting the life and we're going to reinsure the life insurance company for uh, I think about 60 million dollars worth of life insurance so once you had put all the insurance procurement that the university makes through the captive as a first port of call, say, you've been primarily focusing on third party and affiliate type lines of insurance. What was the primary driver and kind of motivation for you guys to go down that route? So I think as Courtney had mentioned before, a lot of our first party lines have already been taken care of with Fiat Lux. And I think this third party really, we're now focusing on driving value back to the students, the faculty and the staff of the University of California really just in line with our mission statement and so I think right now it's almost like we're using the captives and captive insurance to enable all of the 
the education and research that happens on our campuses, that is what is driving the third party. So adding third party risk is still somewhat of a divisive issue, I find, for captive owners. Some people, uh, some organizations are very open to the idea of adding third party risk and others are reluctant to utilize a captive vehicle in that way, preferring to use the captive purely as a cost rather than, than a profit center. Do you see that trend only going one way in that organizations will only become more amenable to the idea of understanding third party risk and why it can be beneficial? Yeah, I, well, see, I don't think third party risk is that big a deal, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, I don't know where people have hang ups on that, although it's harder. Okay, it's hard to do third party risk, and and the the, the main reasons for that are is is that you you're now dealing with a fronting company, yeah, and you're also dealing with in most cases reinsurance arrangements and reinsurance agreements, and so those take time. Those are difficult to negotiate because um, you're usually taking away and and as any other initiative, whether it's first party or third party. Uh, what we're trying to do is capture underwriting investment or underwriting income and investment income uh, that normally was retained by the carrier. So you can imagine any third-party arrangement you're going to go into, your, your partner may not be as anxious to do this third-party insurance as you are because yeah. you're going to be capturing their underwriting profit and their investment income. So they're, they're a heavier lift in that regard. They're harder. And as, as I've told my board um, and my boss, is, is the easy stuff's pretty much done. I mean, we probably have another, what do you say, $10, $15 million of stuff to, right. to, to sweep to up discover, yeah. on, on first party. Uh, but we can really make an impact with third party. Um, a, a, not necessarily a bigger impact because we've made a big impact, but we can continue to build because the, the, the cool thing about our whole captive platform is, is that the profits generated, underwriting profits and corresponding investment income, all get driven back directly to the premium payer. Yeah. And so if we can reduce the cost of workers' compensation, we can give it back in rate relief. Well, that rate relief goes right down to the department head who in his annual budget has to budget so much for work comps. So what this does is it, it supports uh, the mission of the university of research and education, and we can put more money back into it. Yeah. And so this third party business is going to be very similar in that regard, is, is that we're going to, you, you look very closely at any initiative before you go into it to ensure that it's profitable, negotiate the contracts that are fair, and then once you're able to capture underwriting profit, return underwriting profits, actually, uh, usually depending upon the line of business, three to five years down the road, it's going right back to the pre- to the premium pair. I guess one of, is one of the other obstacles regarding third-party risk and why some captors might not want to go down that route, kind of that interface with the consumer. You know, suddenly you're not just a private insurance company for your parent; you are now an insurance company which could be held accountable by consumers or customers. Or is that a, is that a consideration in how you manage those relationships, or do you? purely let the fronting company look after that for you? Yeah, that's that's another good question because uh, this was brought up uh, by my board, actually by our board president, Janet Napolitano, when I first proposed alumni personal lines, homeowner and auto. And she was concerned about the political risk of being an owner of a program that ultimately, if a claim got denied, yeah. you know, or there was a claim dispute, it would uh, look poorly upon the university. 
Well, this is where the fronting partner is so key, is, is that we can, as I've told many people over the years uh, around the university system, I can participate in these arrangements and you don't even know I'm there because it's just a reinsurance agreement. Now, we prefer to, the, the UC brand is probably one of the top three brands in California, so you want to capitalize on that. But if you co-brand with a, with a fronting carrier, um, that's going to allow you that independence because that's their job. Their job is to underwrite price and issue policies and do claims. So you do have kind of an arm's length uh, relationship there. I always enjoy talking and listening to Courtney and Karen because you can really hear their genuine passion for the captive concept. And it's great to see um, cases such as those where the captive parent has fully bought into and is fully utilising uh, the captive itself. Now, it's certainly a great story and, and, and what growth they've seen in that captive as well. And the addition of the new lines and the bringing in of third party liabilities. But I think for a, you know, a, a university programme as, as big as you see, they have an enormous market to now push out those third-party programs, a huge affinity group of students, presumably both past and present. Um, and alumni are always going to be very loyal to their university, especially if they see a non-profit feeding funds back into that campus. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big motivation for them because of that network and because of that loyalty that you mentioned from alumni. And I'm going to put you on the spot here because I haven't prepared you for this one, but we mentioned about... Uh, monitoring new lines is third party risk have you ever had to get involved with captors legacy third party risk liabilities we have yes and it's an area which does come up fairly frequently is captors looking to get rid of the third party risk that they had written but i think this tends to go back considerably longer than we're looking at now and these are probably back in the 80s and 90s certainly in the days where there were tax advantages to have third party risk um, but the uh, the corporate owners not appreciating that the liabilities could still be around 10, 20, 30 years later. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know UC do use some fronting for their third-party programmes, but don't always need it for all of their lines of insurance. Fronting and programme business is an area that R&Q has really been pushing over the last few years, with carriers operating out of Florida for the US market and Malta for Europe. What is the thinking behind adding this option, and does it complement the legacy management business that you have? We think it complements very well, and R&Q have two main streams of business. One is legacy, and the other is underwriting live business through select cover holders, uh, predominantly as a front for reinsurers who want access to that business but don't have the licensing. And we use the same core companies, so accredited surety and casualty, our A-rated carrier in Florida, and accredited Europe, our A-rated carrier in Malta. Uh, accredited US is, is admitted in all 50 states, has very, very significant penetration on all classes, and similar with, uh, with accredited in Malta as well. And so both of those have been needed to have that widespread licensing in order to do legacy, to be able to take on California workers' comp, other lines of business, UK employers, liability, etc. And so we had the position where we had very well-rated companies, we had extensive licensing, and yet we were only doing retrospective business. So what was wrong with then looking at doing live business? There were certainly opportunities, there were people knocking on our door saying, come on, you've got the vehicle, will you do it? And we've been really focusing on that for the last three or four years. It's growing significantly. At the end of 2018, we had contracted gross written premium of around about $500 million dollars, and that is growing significantly. And they complement each other in, in other ways where there are potential deals we see where there is a mix of both a legacy taking on a back book 
and then providing live going forward. Uh, we haven't done very much in the captive spaces yet, but it's an area that we're in discussion. Certainly, we, we have the capability with our extensive licenses to front for corporates uh, across the US um, in order to front for their captives. Uh, but we have done some in the legacy space in Europe where we've taken on the liabilities from EU captives who have wanted to leave because of Solvency 2. We've taken those into mortar, but then their offshore captive has then reinsured us. Mm. So we're effectively providing a retrospective front. So the two areas really do complement each other. That, that, that is interesting, actually. I hadn't heard, uh, hadn't heard about you doing that before with um, kind of fronting, for, almost a fronting for uh, the offshore captive. And we often hear Malta as the perfect jurisdiction to do that. I know that they've been wanting to push their PCC vehicles to the, particularly to the US market. If you've got a US captive or offshore captive, you might then want to rent a cell to front into, into the rest of Europe through Malta. But it's interesting that you're obviously providing that facility through accredited uh, in Malta, so that's one to watch out for. And I'm also sure that as we see further consolidation within the big carrier market, that um, clients will be looking for more and more options again uh, from fronting. So maybe you will be well positioned for that as well. So watch this space. Well, before we finish, Paul, and I ask you for your song to play the episode out to, and I am definitely intrigued by that one, um, I should just say thank you to you and RQ for supporting me in making the Global Captive Podcast project possible uh, this year. We've had some great response to the first five episodes over the first few months. Um, and I'm really looking forward to many more intriguing captive discussions through the rest of uh, 2019 and beyond. Well, we're delighted to be supporting this. I mean, it really is a fantastic uh, venture uh, to get away from the written word and reading numerous media journals to be able to sit on the train or walk the dog or walk across the bridge to the office to to listen to peers in the captive community speak is so much more engaging than just reading the cold words on a on a piece of paper or on the laptop. All right, well, I do still write some stuff, so hopefully the, the written word isn't uh, completely completely um, obsolete anymore. But thank you, Paul, for joining me in episode six of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by R&Q. And thank you to all of my guests this week, Anne-Marie Toll, Courtney Claflin, and Karen Z. Please do not forget to follow our page on LinkedIn. We're almost at 200 followers now, which is brilliant. So thank you for the support, but do look us up. However you listen to the pod, please also do subscribe through your app of choice, whether that be iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and any other third-party app, we should be on there. If you do subscribe, it will download straight to your smartphone when it is released. See you next time, captives. Captives.